Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. The House China Task Force recently issued a report with hundreds of policy recommendations to counter current and emerging threats from China. In this segment, the Brownstein government relations team analyzes which recommendations are likely to be prioritized next cycle and advises on the significant impact new policies may have on companies and their supply chains. Welcome back to the Brownstein podcast series. I'm Mark Baggage, and today we'll be analyzing and interpreting the recently published China Task Force report. I'm joined by a few of my esteemed colleagues with direct experience and expertise on this subject. We have Ed Royce, former chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Barry Jackson, a top Republican strategist who held senior positions in Congress and the White House, and Ari Zimmerman, a former professional staff member of the House Armed Services Committee. Okay, so let's unpack this China Task Force report. There were hundreds of policy recommendations made to counter current and emerging threats from China. Barry, I want, if I can, to get you kind of set the table on this. Can you give us a little context of the events that led to this task force? But also, uh, what does it mean? You know, where, where do we go? Help us understand why we had this task force put together and why these people were on it. Well, I, I think one thing to remember is that it's been a bipartisan policy of the United States going back 30 plus years. How do we engage China in the world? And being idealist as we are as Americans, the assumption was getting them into a rules-based economy, getting them into multilateral organizations, that they would come along and become a, a good partner in so many things that are important to us value-wise. That hasn't worked out the way people thought it would. And it's not a finger-pointing blame game. It's like us as Americans to reach out and try to help everybody along in, in the way that we see things. So last year, the House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, and the House Minority Leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy started conversations about having the House set up a bipartisan task force to to do a set piece of U.S. policy towards China and covering the gamut of, of areas from supply chain to national security, technology, economics, energy, um, competitiveness what we call soft power, the, the ideological competition that, that has evolved. And talks were progressing pretty well that, that you were going to have a bipartisan task force do this. Well, earlier this year, obviously, the, the COVID crisis broke and China found itself in the middle of it. And I think politics got in the way and, and where I think the Democratic leadership decided it would be best if they stepped back from this because they didn't want it to be used to advance one party or the other's political needs. Um, the House Republicans decided we're going to go ahead with that anyway. And so over the past year, a broad group uh, of House Republican members got to work, divided themselves up and, and started researching U.S. policy, both from a congressional standpoint and an administrative standpoint and put together this massive report 
And then, and I think the thing that is of most interest to this, and that it didn't get a lot of coverage, but the report, even though it's authored by the House Republicans, it is a bipartisan document. A lot of the input and a lot of the recommendations are things that have already enjoyed bipartisan support. And I think this is going to be something that, regardless of the outcome of the election, either administration, a Biden administration or, or a Trump administration, and the Senate and the House will use this as a foundation piece as we start tackling how do we deal with China and all these different sectors. Barry, let me ask you, and before I go to the next question, just to expand a little bit on that last point, and that is when people read the report, and it is extensive, don't read that much into the names necessarily on the report that limit Democrat, Republican names, but really the report is bipartisan because Washington works kind of in a mysterious way at times. Is that a, I don't know if I'm saying it the right way, but maybe you could add to that. Mark, I think you hit it exactly correct. China policy has a long, extensive history on the Hill where bipartisan efforts take place. Because whether we were talking about national security, whether we were talking about intel, myself, I'm on the board of the National Endowment of Democracy. I'm chairman of the Australian American Council. So I spend a lot of time focused on the human rights and the soft power side of China. And rarely do these conversations break, well, there's a Republican way and a Democratic way to deal with supply chain. When you need supplies, you need supplies. It's, it's, it's Mark, you were a mayor, you know this. There's not a Republican or Democrat way to pick up the garbage in Anchorage. <laughs> and China policy is going to be the same way. We may have different ideas, but the goal here is that as a government and as the political system, we have to present a united front in all of these areas. The elections are happening. We don't know the outcome. I think it's the craziest election cycle we've seen probably in our lifetime. But no matter what happens, the first 100 days of next year are going to have a lot of activity. When you hear Barry kind of setting the stage, COVID-19 was really a wake-up call on kind of supply chain, as an example. You know, that we recognize with China, there's an issue with supply chain and security and so forth. So with that all said, I guess... What do you think these national security issues, will they rise to the top of the first 100 days of this new Congress with this fresh Congress? Will they tackle kind of a number of these priorities that we recognized via COVID-19, but now they're really uh, going to be in front of us with a new face, new con- new group? And I guess let me first uh, ask Congressman Royce, and then I'd love to ask Ari if you want to jump in. I'd, I'd love it. Congressman Royce. Well, I I think that Congress is going to move fairly rapidly here because part of this is also responding to actions that that Beijing has taken. And by making transferring of technology a cost of doing business, by demanding a backdoor into all of the U.S. companies operating there, uh, they've now put in motion deeper, shall we say, analysis of, of where this has led us. And so the consensus view now is driving towards um, differentiating between uh, supply chains coming from China in which dumb parts are coming into the United States versus those with national security significance. And for those with the type of significance uh, that it could impact, let us say, 
the supply um, of some of our medications, uh, what we've learned about COVID as a result of those vulnerabilities is obviously going to be addressed. Uh, but, but in addition to that, technology itself you see what's happening with 5G. You know what's going to happen with um, areas of the economy in which China maybe has dominated, but now it, it poses a certain threat. You see the discussion now about developing vehicles here and not making China part of those driverless vehicles in the, in the supply chain. All of this, I think, requires some careful analysis by companies as they ask themselves, uh, what portion of my supply chain do I have to move out of China? Should I move that to some of our trading partners in Southeast Asia? Do I move part of it to Latin America? Uh, In terms of the highest security, you know with semiconductors that the new analysis is going to be that it has to be approached from a standpoint of security and integrity in the system. And only some of our allies can match that capability. So there will be a rush towards positioning there. And then lastly, with all of the subsidies that are anticipated, you know, from both sides of the aisle in terms of inducements, do you resource back to the United States uh, certain parts of the high-end part of that value chain? So, you know, these are, these are areas where we can help navigate uh, these waters, but uh, there's some of the important questions for corporations doing business internationally. So let me ask you, Ari, on this, you know, you, you were staffed the House Armed Services Committee, which DOD had a huge security issue of where they got material. And same question, but maybe from that end of the decision discussion of, is there a supply chain? Will, will it be Democrats and Republicans? Will they take this report and use it as a baseline to figure out what do we got to do here? And will it, will it rise to the priority, I guess? That's, to me, a lot of people are wondering, you know, with all the other things going on. But Ari? Senator, thank you for the question. And I would just concur with my colleagues. Um, Congressman Mike McCall, who's the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, but also chaired this task force recently gave us a talk at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, and he said that this is not a Republican or Democrat issue, but this is an American issue. And when it comes to this report and when it comes to these issues, um, he thought that, you know, after this election season comes to an end, that this country will come together as Americans as it relates to the challenges posed by China. Um, which is why he claimed that three quarters of the 430 recommendations made in this report are bipartisan. And doing the quick math, um, that's 320 recommendations that Republicans and Democrats can both get behind to move on. Um, That's a significant amount of common ground. And I think that the stakes couldn't be higher to ensure that this happens often. Um, Xi Jinping himself frames this period between 2017 and 2022 as the pivotal moment for the Chinese Communist Party's long-term plan of national rejuvenation to overtake the United States by 2049 politically, economically, and militarily. So what does this mean to you? A complex web of Chinese laws and policies gives the Chinese Communist Party the right to take any private sector entity technology for military use. 
obtain any data collected by a private enterprise, and compel any organization or individual to carry out intelligence agencies. And as we talk about supply chain, by becoming a critical link in the world supply chain of essential everyday items that you know Americans and Europeans alike and um, other nations rely on, from pharmaceuticals to every type of electronic device, the Chinese Communist Party has an incredible amount of leverage over the United States. And the coronavirus crisis ha has really opened the eyes of many Americans to this respect. As the, as the crisis unfolded, China nationalized 3M and General Motors facilities in China to produce PPE and then controlled their exports to the US and the EU. Um, let's look at semiconductors, which Chairman Royce just noted. Uh, semiconductors are the backbone of nearly every connected or smart device. And while the U.S. is the global leader in IP and the design of semiconductors, most chips uh, are not manufactured in the United States. In fact, nearly 90% of the world's semiconductors are produced outside of the United States. And meanwhile, the Chinese Communist Party is spending hundreds of billions of dollars with the goal to establish itself as the global leader in all segments of the semiconductor supply chain. When you hear that story you just laid out, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, and I think some of that, like what you just said about 3M and so forth, none of that was known in a, in a broader sweep, but let's broaden this a little bit. We know there's six buckets that were laid out in this report. Uh, ideological competition, supply chain security, which we talked, you laid out very eloquently, national security, technology, which Congressman talked about, economics and energy competitiveness. I guess to any of you that want to jump in on this, we know the broader China is on people's mind, but in order for Congress to work, they can't do it all. They're going to pick and choose what they think is the priorities. And of those six categories, what kind of rises to the top, I guess? What rises and what do we think a Biden administration or a Trump administration they may have different priorities might pick if they're continuing on in the Trump administration or the Biden administration. Who wants to, Barry, I'll go there. And I think I saw Ari next, but Barry. I see two things that come together here, which is the ideological competition and technology. Because one of the things is, is, you, is you discuss where communications and technology is going and that infrastructure behind it. There is a great concern that, that China is leveraging that technology to advance ideologies, particularly in developing regions like Africa and in Latin America. And what you find is maybe bad actors at the state level on those two continents marrying themselves up with the promises that Chinese technology will give them in terms of being able to, you know, control the telecommunication space or control the space that, that your law enforcement might use. And so I, I can see because Congress has always been in a bipartisan way, um, very generous in its support of these of, of efforts to, to help newly advanced democracies and struggling democracies um, to keep a firm foothold and, and technology is going to be the key to that. And so I see an intersect there and 
because of our own internal debate about technology, I, I can see this being one of the first things that really gets um, nailed right out of the gate. Yeah, I agree with you, Barry. I think the reality is that Huawei and ZTE, for example, are viewed as building the digital infrastructure uh, across these developing countries that will be used for communications. But at the same time, China's in there leveraging with a debt trap uh, diplomacy, making deals at interest rates which can't be paid back. So the question for U.S. policymakers is how will we come in, create actually a market for competition to what Beijing is doing? And part of that is the new Development Finance Corporation. So as we tackle this issue of um, 5G, we also have new, new tools, shall we say, with uh, you know doubling the book of business to do this, increasing our ability to do this with our allies, um, the ability to bring private capital in to, be, to deploy in these areas. All of this is intended to avoid a situation where Beijing erodes the sovereignty of these countries, you know, in Africa, Latin America, uh, South Asia. Uh, but instead, you know, pushes the idea of their own sovereignty and their own access to information, which we also now provide under new legislation, so that those on the other side of these negotiations suddenly understand the real costs that China is getting them to sign up to. Uh, they've got, what, over 30 ports around the world that they've uh, leveraged themselves into. It's time that we really look at what they're doing with that infrastructure and the fact that they can control the communications uh, and um, have that kind of access is really problematic. That will be addressed. That Brownstein, we represent a lot of groups and companies and associations. And, you know, there's this kind of mixed bag of what some might need. And or some come in saying we want to do business with China. Some say we'd rather not have China dumping into the U.S. And then there's some that are just new. They're trying to figure out even how to do business in, in China. So what is it that our clients should be thinking about right now? What should they be preparing for? in any one of those scenarios that they may be engaged in when it comes to China policy? And, and how do we, we obviously engage with our clients on a very regular basis. And I know we get these questions, Barry. Right. So, so I think the first thing that, that if, if you're doing business in China or you're thinking about doing business in China or you're impacted by it is that what is transpiring across the globe is this reset of rules of engagement. And as companies, both U.S.-based companies and global companies, have come to this realization that operating in China requires a different set of rules, it means that here in the United States, we're starting to say, all right, China is no longer going to have the benefit of being able to list on, on an American exchange, but not live up to the standards that we require of our own companies. So I think you're going to see a lot of that going on. And, I, and, and the other thing, which Ari and I as staffers and Mark, you and Ed as members of Congress, we all dealt with constituents who came to us with these challenges about China. So nobody should be embarrassed 
that at this point they need to come for some kind of help and guidance on on how you deal with China. And and again, the biggest thing I believe is going to be whether it's a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, is that we're going to be going through all of the rules of engagement on the business side, accounting side, technology side, and saying what's fair is fair. If U.S. companies and our allies abide by this set of rules, if China wants access to our markets, they need to abide by that set of rules. Congressman, you mentioned, and I think, again, for our clients, I'm thinking about this as Barry just laid out, and I think that's a good point. No one should be embarrassed that they, you know, got kind of overrun a little bit on China and some of their activity. A lot of the work we do is trying to help solve those problems. But in Congress, you had mentioned, in the administration, you you had mentioned uh, the new development corporation, but there's more tools in the box that probably clients may not know about or people who want to do business in China. Is that a kind of an emerging opportunity that as we talk to folks that want to do business in China or want to fix some of their work over there, that there's there's more tools now. And that's something we have a lot of knowledge about. And I know your experience as a chairman of a committee, you knew a lot about this. Yeah, the important the important point here is for those doing business there, protecting their technology. So uh, you, you just don't want to be engaged in the high end of business because, as Barry already shared, we've, we've got plenty of feedback in terms of challenges uh, from constituents uh, who then found that the rules change because rules are anything except certain in that environment. I remember over 20 years ago, Senator, I had an opportunity to, uh, to go with a delegation to China. And I remember the head of state sharing with us that, you know, your system is to be open, your system is to have your your constituents make the decisions about what products are going to come into the country. Here, those decisions are made by the government. That's, that's our system. So we have a different system. Uh, it's knowing those rules of the road and knowing how arbitrarily they can be changed that's important. So if it's, as I said before, if it's a dumb part that you're manufacturing there as part of your supply chain, you can probably protect that. But you do have to be cognizant of the fact that these rules change. And then secondarily, the way Congress is looking at this now is we are going to apply the same rules to China that they're applying to us. And in other words, if we're not allowed into their market, uh, except for agriculture or certain products, then what we are going to ask in return is a set of rules that at least protect our technology, our cutting edge advantages that we've developed that we don't necessarily want to share with those who might not use them for the same purposes. A lot of this is dual use. And that's that's the other real concern of to what end uh, for information technology. Where does that end up as China uses information? So the important thing is to get the rules of the road set. The important thing is to, you know, have the leverage uh, to be able to do business with China, but have them understand our rules. And we're in a position to, you know, help navigate those questions. Ari, just to, uh, we're almost out of time here, but to kind of follow up on that, I think that the uh, Congressman said it very well, and that is that we have a unique set of 
experiences here, not only on the podcast today, but within the firm of Brownstein, that as these rules get set, we can help uh, engage with clients, understand what those rules are, but also make sure they're not detrimental to them. I mean, give me, give me your thoughts on that. And, and again, we're just about out of time, but this has been, uh, I think, very enlightening for the folks that are listening. So thank you, Senator, for the question. And, and as we've noted on this podcast, China is spending incredibly heavily to overtake the United States in several uh, top innovation and technology areas. So maybe to end on a positive note, for those of you um, out there and our clients uh, and others listening that are in the business of developing next generation advanced technologies in the areas like quantum computing or artificial intelligence, there's a positive story actually to be told from what China is doing. And that's that the Congress is actually considering some you know, rather anti-capitalistic solutions to these problems. Let's take a bill in Congress called the CHIPS Act, uh, an overwhelmingly bipartisan bill introduced by Senators Cornyn and Warner in the Senate and uh, McCall and Matsui in the House. It's a bill that provides incentives for those seeking to manufacture semiconductors here in the United States. It's a bill that, as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, passed 96 to 4 on the Senate floor. And this bill uh, is designed to pump billions of dollars direct from the federal government into private entities to ensure that we can stay on top uh, of Chinese competition in industry. And so, you know, whether it's this group, this incredible group on the podcast right now, uh, or it's Brownstein's 50 plus professionals that a standard practice we surround every single client with, We have the reach, the expertise, and we've done it before, uh, to help you and your technology uh, make sure that the federal government is aware of it um, and and is able to support you um, in in this endeavor. Ari, I I said you were the last. I saw Barry wanted to say something, but I want to say this, that uh, Congressman, you said it well, the Chinese policy when it comes to business is fluid at, at best. The rules change. And we have to be nimble and quick to respond and uh, be able to ensure our clients have the right kind of response back to them. Barry, did you have the final word? Right. So one of the things to really also stress about this, throughout this conversation, we've talked about rules and putting on my, my democracy hat. The foundation of success is called the rule of law. And one of the things that makes Brownstein unique in the advocacy space is not only we're the largest advocacy firm in Washington, but we're a multi-state law firm with a big footprint in California, which obviously is a big entry point for Chinese business. And so when you hire our firm, not only do you get, as Ari said, this wonderful set of, of Democratic and Republican colleagues uh, that operate out of our Washington office, but you get some of the best intellectual property lawyers, best litigators that you could possibly have. If worst case comes, you're facing a rule of law situation with with the Chinese dictatorship. Um, what will make this unique is that um, one of the things you have to remember is that the power resides in the Chinese Communist Party. It's not the Chinese government. 
And that's why understanding and being nimble on these rule of law issues is so critical. Well said. Uh, again, I want to thank my colleagues, Barry Jackson, Ari Zimmerman, and Congressman Royce for a great discussion about the task force report, but also just the policy between the U.S. and China and what people need to be thinking about and prepared for, no matter who is elected in these offices uh, as the election comes near. So again, thank you all very much for joining and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.